You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ Community Radio Station, Joy 94.9. Ben Notes is our weekly jazz program going to air each Sunday night. Adrian Jackson, the artistic director of the Wangratta Festival of Jazz and Blues, has prepared this year's program for next weekend with a feast of wonderful music, a huge range of great musos, and without intentionally having a focus, he's produced a program with a focus. At least it looks a little that way because it features a number of amazing female musicians from both Australia and overseas. One of the featured artists is Melbourne-based educator and contemporary improvising pianist and composer as well, Andrea Keller. She's a winner of three ARIA Awards, four Australian Jazz Bell Awards, an Art Music Award and fellowships from the MCA Friedman Foundation and the Australia Council. Andrea, I reckon, is a great choice for this year's festival. It's my pleasure to welcome to Bent Notes... Andrea Keller. Hi, David. Great to have you on the show, Andrea. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to say hello. First of all, you're an improvising pianist. How old were you when you knew that you were going to be a musician? And how did you put that knowledge into play? I've always thought that I would be a musician. I never questioned it or did anything else, even from a very young age. But initially my tuition was by classical musicians and learning classical music and I had a deep love of classical music and still do and when I was a teenager I started listening to jazz and I grew up in Sydney so I would go out and listen to live jazz in Sydney and it really really kind of won me over it took me a few years to get the courage to start learning to try to play this music and particularly the improvised element of it I found daunting coming from a background where I really only focused on learning predetermined compositions that had been written by someone else. so It must be a bit of a challenge to a young mind to be trained to play what's written on the paper, the little black notes, and then all of a sudden have to think about playing something without any notes in front of you. Ah, yes, it was incredibly daunting. And I felt like at the time that I would be revealing all my secrets, all my deepest, darkest secrets, you know, through this very personal expression. I think that's what I found both intriguing and absolutely frightening about it, that it was such a personal music and that I was really expressing, you know, my innermost feelings rather than someone else's and then my slant on that, you know, very personal. When did you decide that you wanted to concentrate on your jazz and improvisation more so than the classical? Well, I finished my high school years still doing classical as my main focus, but it was very clear to me even by year 12 that I didn't have an interest in doing a Bachelor of Music in classical music. By then I was already very much sort of taken away with with jazz and improvisation. And then I had a couple of years where I was sort of dabbling a bit between the two, plus adding composition a bit more to my skill set. And it wasn't until Uh, A couple of years out of school, I was doing, I began a degree down in Wollongong and a guest artist there recommended that I really should be playing jazz because that's where my heart was. They recommended that I come down to Melbourne, that there was a great course um, at the VCA and and so I followed up on that and it ended up being really fantastic for me. What great advice to receive. So they could see that you were doing both both genres and yet there was something special about the jazz side of it. Yes, and really that's where my heart lay and the teacher was encouraging me to follow that, that that's really all you can follow and also, which I didn't have an understanding of at that age, but he really pointed out to me that I needed to take care of my own education. I couldn't follow someone else's 
sort of opinion or, or advice solely that I really had to go, hang on, I really feel like I should be doing this or I really want to do this. So I need to put myself in a place that's going to help me achieve that. That was a fantastic lesson. That must be rather a difficult challenge for someone who's coming through the school years and doing what you're told and doing this, that and the other, and then all of a sudden being told, make your own mind up. Mm, yeah, but it needed to be said. I, I think it's a pity no one said it to me a bit earlier <laughs> when I was <laughs> even younger. Um, but it's certainly a message that I try to give to my kids and, and to my students as well, that you know, they really they need to take charge of this, of their own education and their own path. That's a good lesson, I think, for all of us. Yes. You then moved down to Melbourne and, and attended the VCA. How important is the educator to the development of a jazz musician? Well, I mean, I think the educator is, is very important in that the educator encourages, nurtures, mentors, as well as demonstrates and shows ways to approach the music, ways to practice the music, how to behave in the industry, how to how to be employable, you know, and they really demonstrate that more just by who they are and, and what they're, you know, how they how they sort of hold themselves in their career. But a lot of it, I mean, most of the work is actually done by the individual. As, a, as an educator, you can really only guide people and share your own experiences and what's worked for you. But it's such an individual music. It's not laid out in black and white. It's not clear how to practice or what to practice. There's skills, like there's a definite skill set and tools to be learned, but really it's a very individual journey in terms of what you do practice, what your aesthetic is, what you're aiming for, the sound you'd like to be achieving. Jazz as a genre is such a wide encompassing term. So, you know, what pathway someone wants to follow in the music, whether it's playing more of an American tradition or finding a very personal Australian voice or or a European thing or original or being a side person or you know, there's so many facets to the music and to the industry. So, you know, people have to decide that on an individual basis what what actually resonates with them and and how they're going to continue through their journey. How did you decide yourself about the direction that you took? Coming down to the VCA was incredibly important for me because I'd, the jazz experience that I'd had had been watching live musicians in Sydney and listening to a lot of American jazz from 40s, 50s and 60s. So my impression was that to be a jazz musician, I'd be learning the American tradition from that period. But coming down to Melbourne and studying at the VCA when Brian Brown was the head of the school and he'd set it up with his philosophy, his philosophy was that we are Australian, that everything that has come into someone's life, the music they've listened to, their heritage, you know, in my case, I'm a white Australian female, born of European migrant parents. He grew up listening to classical music and loving 20th century classical music, not really growing up in the pop culture at all, like I didn't immerse myself in that or that music growing up. What Brian Brown did was say, well, all of those things are vital to who you are as an improviser and as a jazz musician. And actually, rather than focusing on learning an American tradition of music that you're so far detached from, 
you should be searching for what your, you know, what your very personal and individual Australian sound could be and what you hear as being important in this music. So I was really fortunate, you know, that I started there at 19, that I was hit with this straight away and it really resonated with me because I did have such a strong classical background and a love of, of classical composition and orchestral music, piano music, you know, kind of the whole works. So it was so refreshing for me to hear someone say, well, actually, that's really important and you need to bring that in to what you're doing now rather than trying to forget it ever happened and starting to learn this musical language anew. Actually, all of it's really important. So from there, I suppose that encouragement, I started writing and composing a lot more music and then putting together my own ensembles and projects and dreaming up what sort of people I wanted to be playing with and what sort of music I wanted to be playing, where I wanted to be playing it, and everything kind of has rolled on there. But if I didn't have that initial, you know, really strong philosophical statement from Brian Brown about this music that I called jazz, I think it would have been a very different story for me. My guest on Bent Notes tonight is the contemporary improvising pianist Andrea Keller. Thank you for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Find more Joycasts and show vlogs, go to joy.org.au. My guest tonight on Bent Notes is the contemporary improvising pianist Andrea Keller. Andrea, you've been talking about developing your own style effectively. As an educator, you're talking about encouraging the students to do their own thing. That's trying to develop, I suppose, their originality. Is that something that students have difficulty coping with the idea that they can have original ideas? Some more so than others. Some seem to already have that that kind of ability and understanding at quite a young age, and others are a little bit more tentative or apprehensive about that. Perhaps they haven't had as much experience in, you know, in playing music and playing their own music. But, you know, for whatever reasons, I still think, you know, not everyone's going to go down that path where they're going to be really driven to create their own original music and immerse themselves in a scene that is all about, you know, playing original music. But I still think it's worth, you know, it's worth sort of planting that seed. This isn't to say, though, of course, that I discourage learning the history of the music or the American tradition. I mean, I draw very heavily from that and I'm, I'm really inspired by that and I've learned many great and important lessons from that. So it's not, it's not about negating that, that sort of um, learning from what's come before us musically. That's definitely a big part of the, the education. But it's also with this view to what you can actually do with that information and how you can personalise it and then use it for your own expression. Do students in that position look up to mentors, or are their lecturers essentially their mentors during that period of their education? I suppose during that period of their education, the educators are the, are the mentors in a way. It, it's sort of sad. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a couple of great mentors, the most recent and probably most long serving, if I can use that word, if it's not inappropriate, was the great Alan Brown, who sadly passed away last year. And I was so fortunate to play with him for 15 years. I started playing with him when I was relatively young and 
inexperienced, but he was incredibly encouraging of me. And, you know, we, we played regularly together and recorded a couple of albums. And I still draw from the lessons that I learnt from Al. So I feel very fortunate about that. But the, the mentor system back in the day, I suppose, like in the 50s and 60s was a, or even earlier, was a major way of learning the music. And unfortunately these days, and I suppose universities and art colleges have had something to do with that, the mental system kind of died died away a little bit and it's more about studying in an institution and learning from books. I mean, there's brilliant, so many brilliant books about how to play jazz and, and all of that, but it, it has seemed to take away from this, the old system of, of mentors, which is a little sad, but it's something that, you know, through my fortunate time with Alan Brown and with other people in the in the Australian jazz scene that I consider to be really vital, have been really vital in my life. I, I'm sort of now feeling that responsibility as I get older and my own sort of experience grows. I'm starting to feel that responsibility to younger younger generations. So this year in particular, I've started playing with a couple of younger musicians that I hadn't hadn't. Um, been doing that so much in the past. Essentially continuing the tradition that Alan set up. Yes, which I think is it's vital to us as artists and it's also a lovely way to honour him and sort of my way of showing my gratitude for what he, what he gave to me and, and just how incredible it's been in my life. It's a, it's a beautiful tradition to continue, Andrea. It really is. Yes. It, it, it says a lot about where you hold Alan in your perspective of life, and it says a lot about what Alan was able to do during his life. Absolutely. And, of course, Alan was a regular at the at the festivals around the place as well. What do you see as the value of a festival such as Wangaratta for yourself as a, a musician, but more importantly for the up-and-coming musicians? What I've always loved most about Wangaratta is that, you know, it's a festival, I mean, it's in Victoria, but it's more up the top end of Victoria. So it really brings in a lot of Victorian, New South Wales musicians, ACT musicians, and beyond that, I mean, musicians come from all other parts of Australia as well as uh, internationally. But there's a lovely sense of camaraderie between the Sydney musicians and the Melbourne musicians and even Canberra musicians that goes on. It's a beautiful opportunity to socialise and to hear what other musicians are doing live. I, I buy a lot of Australian jazz albums and I know a lot of, you know, most of the most of the Australian jazz scene does as well. Like we like to know what everyone's up to and what they're writing and who they're playing with and, and what's going on. But to actually hear your colleagues live that you, you normally don't get to hear live so much, spend time catching up and it's it's a really beautiful thing and also facilitates a lot of collaborations that are difficult to happen otherwise and are quite expensive to happen without the support of the festival. That's something that I really value about it and also just being there for three days, totally immersed in music and not only playing but as I said listening to a lot of music and I think for emerging musicians it's really inspiring to be around so many great musicians in one small town and you're all kind of stuck there. And the only thing really to do is to, is to play and listen and, and talk. 
So I think, yeah, for the emerging musicians, it's, it's really inspiring and it's something to aspire to as well, to perform there. Uh, because it's definitely one of the biggest jazz festivals we have. It's got a beautiful feel to it up at Wangaratta, and, and I think the fact that the venues are so close together, there's that little cafe area out in the street immediately uh, outside the Performing Arts Centre, and normally you've got the Blues Tent down on Apex Park. This year it'll be up at the, the Gardens. So it, it's all such a small area that you can literally walk from one end of the festival to the other in... 10, 15 minutes and yeah, see so right. many things and and as you say, get experience of seeing everyone. I picked up on the point there about buying the albums that are produced by other Australian musos, but there's yeah. nothing nothing like seeing the music performed live. Absolutely, yeah. There's nothing like seeing it performed live with an audience where the energy is there. It's a different energy, a live performance to a studio performance. You know, even when it's being played... And um, definitely, you know, it's a different thing listening to music, sitting shoulder to shoulder with, with other people who also admire this music and having it really hit you in the face in a very acoustic way. It's a little bit like expecting someone to learn by reading their books about how to, how to play an instrument without actually hearing someone else play. You can hear, yeah. a, hear an album, but unless you actually see someone performing on stage and realise that they're taking liberties that you might not have thought you could do, they're, they're actually interacting with the audience, which is so important, uh, yes. it's yeah. all part of that active, active learning. Yeah. Even the physical interaction between the the musicians on stage, like you can hear the interaction in the music, but actually to see how they relate to each other on stage and how they communicate, you don't get that on the recording either, so it's a big part too. You're performing four times this uh, this next weekend. That's a very busy weekend. Three of those, uh, two of those times are with Transients, your Transients That's project, right. Transients 1 and 4. Now, I read that it's a series of trio collaborations. How do we fit the word transience and what that sort of means into these trios? And where does Alan Brown fit in the mix? Well, after Alan passed away, I, um, the only trio situation that I played in was with Alan Brown. I had my own long-running quartet and I played in other people's ensembles. But really, in terms of playing piano trio, piano, bass and drums, the trio with Alan was the only one that I played in. And so after he passed away, you know, it occurred to me that among so many other things that I was going to miss about Alan was actually the playing in trio as well. So I was chatting to Sonny Ray, who runs Uptown, and he offered to give me a few gigs, a handful of gigs, and I decided I would put on different trios for each one and then at the end of the process decide which one I liked the best. So I suppose that's where the transients came from, you know, the fact that these were, you know, fluctuating and moving sort of um, ensembles of, of, of three people. Alan Brown was the inspiration behind it because he always spoke about dialogue in music and communication and that music making was a collective experience, that it wasn't about one virtuoso leading the way. It was definitely a collective thing. So that philosophy underlies all the trios. But, of course, after I'd done this series of gigs, I decided that I liked all the trios. So I essentially had five new trios, unexpectedly. And since then, it's been brilliant because I've done some gigs at Bennett's Lane and Megan, the manager there, offered me a regular Tuesday night. So Tuesday nights at Bennett's is now transient Tuesday. 
uh, where I get to present all these trios on a regular basis, which is fantastic for developing the sounds of the bands and the repertoire and all of that. And in the trios, I really encourage the other members to be bringing in their own music as well. So both the trios that are playing at Wangaratta don't just involve my composition. It's also the compositions of my colleagues. So that's kind of new for me because in the past, all the projects that I've run, I've very much been the sole contributor in terms of the repertoire that we play and and just sort of organising the whole thing. Whereas this one, I'm trying to have more of a collective approach to the project. My guest on BitNotes is the contemporary improvising pianist Andrea Keller. Thank you for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Find more Joycasts and show vlogs, go to joy.org.au. My guest tonight on Bent Notes is the contemporary improvising pianist Andrea Keller. Andrea, Transients started out as a small project and it's become a larger transient project. Do you see that this is something that will continue for some time? I hope so, certainly, and I hope it develops further especially through the residency at Bennett's Lane, I think, you know, that, that gives us a life and, um, and the ability to, to grow. So I'm looking forward to see how it continues to develop. You said five different transient trios. Do you see a specific difference between each of those five trios? They're all incredibly different. The lineups are different. Some of them are, like one of them is saxophone and double bass and piano. Another one is guitar, piano and drums. Another one is electric bass, drums and piano. So they're all very different lineups. And the fact that the musicians themselves are all highly individualistic and that everyone's contributing repertoire means that the sound of each is, is really quite unique. Transience One is your sax, piano and double bass group. You've got Julian Wilson, yep. bass clarinet and tenor sax. Yourself yep. on the piano and Sam Anning on the double bass. What a trio. Yep. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. And then you've got Transients Group Number Four: Eugene Ball on the trumpet and Tamara Murphy on the bass. Yes, and Tamara and I, of course, played with Alan Brown in Keller Murphy Brown for about thirteen years, and Eugene played in my quartet for seventeen years. So the three of us have a very long history of playing music together, which is really lovely. No doubt, the three of you read each other extremely well after all that time working together. Yeah, there is a, there is a beautiful rapport, very natural. What else are you doing? I'm doing the Melbourne Women's International Jazz Festival Quintet, and that's bringing together Sydney and Melbourne musicians, Sandy Evans and Zoe Hauptman from Sydney, and then Angela Davis on alto, Sonia Horbelt on drums, and myself on piano. So in that group, everyone contributes original music to the repertoire. And then on a Saturday night, I'm involved in quite an exciting project. It's Ronan Gilfoyle, who's an Irish bass player, so he's one of the international artists. He's coming out and doing a few gigs with his trio, but he's also putting on a very special project called A Shy Going Boy, which is a suite of music written, I think, for his grandfather. And that's going to be with Ronan's Irish trio, plus myself, Scott Tinkler and Jamie Ollers, so it'll be a sextet playing this um, new music so I've just been learning that getting myself ready to perform it and it's going to be quite exciting I think to be involved in that one so well, it should be a great weekend I reckon it's a great weekend and unfortunately uh, Andrew you don't get a lot of time to rest 
No. <laughs> but, uh, we're also doing a bit of rehearsing up there, of course. Of course. People coming from overseas and Sydney and everything. It's the time to get together, too. So, yeah. But well, I like, I, you know, it's great to be just playing music as much as possible. And that's it, isn't it? It's it's getting in there, playing music, not just for yourself, but for others and with others, playing in different groups so that you get the, the different input and then being able to perform for the audiences and interact with the audiences. And as you said before, have a performance that's guided, in, in essence, by the audience reaction to you, yeah, the warmth yeah, and the energy. Right. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight on Bent Notes. I really do appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to seeing you perform up at Wangratta. I thought we'd go out with some music from your Family Portraits album, which is oh, it has been around for a couple of years now, but it's got some beautiful music on it. I've chosen Incomparable. Oh, beautiful. That's for my brother. I wrote that for my brother. Now, there was a story behind that one, wasn't there? Well, I asked him what he wished for the world, and he said that he hoped that people would be able to be more satisfied with living life through what made them happy rather than comparing themselves to other people. And I thought that was such a beautiful sentiment. And to me, my brother's totally incomparable. He's this glimmering spirit. So that's where incomparable grew from. Andrea Keller, thank you so much for talking to Bent Notes tonight. Let's have a listen to Incomparable on Joy 94.9. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au.